Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Polities Podcast, The Politics of Tyranny, uh, where we discuss um, how bullies operate and what to do to trip them in the hall. Yes, exactly, yeah. And actually, we're doing more of a a focus on the (laughs) tripping today and less on the operating of of the big bad tyrants um, because we want to talk about rebellion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So up to now... What we've really been trying to do, and hopefully this is all old hat to you guys at this point, but trying to talk about the different mechanisms of tyranny. Tyranny is something very simple. It's rule for private gain, and it can happen at any level of power, right? Wherever there's power, there's a possibility of tyranny. There's a possibility of someone taking that power and saying, I'm going to use it uh, for my own ends, whatever those will be, over and against the ends of those below me over whom I wield power. That's right, yeah. So any any, yeah. any any amount of power, even if it's the measly kind of power of an older brother over his little brother totally. or even of like your purchasing power in the marketplace right. or something like that is a potential place of tyranny of on some scale. And it seems to me a, a better and a more just society would be full of people that when, when they feel that kind of injustice would say, tyrant. Right. You freaking tyrant to yes. like the parking lot. So a just lot society is one in which tyranny is exposed recognized for what it is mm-hmm. um exposed and and done away with which doesn't happen unless power is recognized for what it is and exposed and pointed out as really being there right, right. so we live in a world that hides tyranny precisely to the extent that it hides power right we don't know who our tyrants are but all we don't know who our tyrants are but we also don't know who wields power over us um or when we do it's not clear what responsibilities come with that right because one of the things in this in this whole conversation of tyranny is that is that we you and i in this conversation have been very unconcerned with um what i think technically would be called de jour right or or sort of formal systems formal offices formal what we're interested in is de facto power so the reality of power because the reality of power is what affects society affects the world and so the reality of power is what we want to talk about now there's there is you can you can then back from that into sort of social structures and customary arrangements legal codes Mm -hmm. all of that sort of stuff is interesting and a part of any discussion of how society works but the, the question of tyranny itself as a moral – as really as a moral question is, a, is always a question of de facto right. power. Right, absolutely. Right? Who in fact has it? Now, it seems that when we unveil <laughs> – that sounds a little dramatic. When we do our very best to sort of talk about this is what a tyranny looks like, it's inevitable that we recognize, as we've said from the beginning, that we are living under a tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, this should become on the one hand alarming and on the one hand less alarming because – Um, It is alarming to live under a tyranny that is uh, to be ruled by those who are only ruling you for the sake of private gain. But on the other hand, if you take what we're saying to be true, which is that tyranny happens at every level of society, that every power relation is the possibility for tyranny just as it's the possibility for sanctity, Mm -hmm. then it's not not exactly that surprising that we live under a tyranny. Like um, it's not that it has to come with trumpets and fanfare and someone invades from, from the north. and Right, and, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's something that grows up within us, you know, that one of the things to think about is that ty- tyrannical societies that I think emerge from within the society, so yeah. a tyrannical order that emerges within it, in a, in a, in a, as opposed to being invaded, mm-hmm. okay? So let's set the whole invasion scenario aside, but emerges from within, one of the things that, I think throughout this podcast series we've talked about is that the the tyrannical power can only be established 
really through the establishment of tyrannical powers down up and down the social hierarchy. Totally. Right. So, so it has to, it, it, it can only realize its power by disordering society totally. uh, beneath it. And so the, the tyranny emerges out of a tyrannical society. And this is the heart of, I think when St. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas and others just throughout the whole sort of tuition tr uh, tradition, when they say things like, um, tyranny is a punishment for your sins, mm. right? I mean, it's, 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 it's objectively true, <laughs> right? That like you, I mean, sociologically true, right. like you deserve the tyrant you get, right. right? To a certain extent, because you can only get him if you deserve him, right? Absolutely. Like tyranny doesn't work otherwise. Yeah. Right. Yeah, otherwise I, he's, it's, it's recognized as unjust power and done away with. Right. I mean, one of the ways that you could just describe a just society is one in which whenever anyone tries to be the tyrant, he gets killed really fast. Fast, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or right. at least coerced into non-entity. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I was thinking about how our um, how our tyr little tyrannies become big tyrannies, right? How our um, in, uh, propensity for gossip and chatter, and idle language, a lack of restraint when it comes to the tongue, um, that this is the means by which um, one of the obvious mechanisms of tyranny, which is just straight up spying on us, is made possible, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talk all the time about how we have no privacy um, and how this is, you know, this feels tyrannical. Everyone's mad about this. People on the left are mad, people on the right, you know, where our data is being taken and sold to corporations. It's being looked at by the FBI, da, da, da. Meanwhile, we are literally typing out everything we think Right. Online. <laughs> and it's just this one, it's one of these really obvious ways where you can see that the tyranny at the top, which is real, mm -hmm. right, isn't accidentally related to the vice on the bottom. Sure. Yeah. The obviously. fact that it, it needs it to survive. Think about think about the sort of tyranny that's possible in the economic regime. Right. And the sort of the sort of self-interested, the, the wielding of power for private gain that's mm. possible at the top, but is only possible because up and down the entire system, everybody's desperate for private gain. Totally. It's a total scramble for as much money as possible, which enables the people at the top to build the regimes of really tyrannical power that they that they build. If if there wasn't that desperate pursuit of wealth, it wouldn't work. Right. So it's the same sort of thing, though. And this and this leads to one of the <clears throat> when we when we ask the question of when and how do we rebel against tyranny. It's a complicated question. It becomes complicated <laughs> before this very reason because, um, I mean, I get it, right? Like you can't keep talking about tyranny and then saying that we live in a tyranny without the question arising idly maybe that, uh, well, what ought we do? Because, and I should – at the first, to be clear, I want to validate this because no one should hear about tyranny in this kind of neutral way. It is not the subject of – political philosophy in some kind of abstract like yeah this is the monarchy it's an act of violence a, yeah that is a, an act of violence against real people right like a us absolutely yeah. and rebellion is not only a understandable response it's obligatory at some level i think it is obligatory yes right like because i mean and you can you can see this by making sure that you're remembering we're talking primarily about de facto power right that mm -hmm. If there is a bully on the playground, it's not simply for the child to who has the power to coerce him into not hurting some weaker person. It's not simply a uh, choice, right? Yeah, it's not just whether it's not or not to rebel. That, it's against not them. simply that the more powerful boy can stop the bully. Right. He he must. He must. He must rebel. The right. question is 
always one of whether he is in a position to do it well, well properly. Right, properly. And that's that's sort of fundamentally what we want to discuss. I mean, the this is a, this is an important point just right off the bat. Okay. I mean, just I mean, just want I want to throw it in there is that morally speaking, and this is something I think Thomas makes clear, and it's just I think is satisfied by common sense. The tyrant himself has no claim on. Let me just put it this way. It's always okay morally to overthrow the tyrant from the perspective of the tyrant. The tyrant has no claim to his tyranny, Okay. right? It's always okay. It's it, a tyrant who is oppressing people can be destroyed morally, right? So the, the question would be, so he has no like sort of moral claim to his power gotcha. or to his office, or he's always overthrowable, mm -hmm. right? Legitimately. Mm -hmm. And um, that's important to just like lay out there because yeah. then any sort of questions that we have are not whether or not the tyrant should be allowed to be the tyrant from some claim he has. It's rather simply the prudential, the, the, the prudential calculus of what overthrowing him looks like, what the consequences of that are, yeah. what, what, you know, what is the situation in which we find ourselves in. Right, yeah. Right? These become the questions. No, rebel rebellion is a, is a moral obligation. The question much more becomes about the speed of it. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I and I think I, I think that I don't know I don't know if you were going to go in, in this route, but maybe it, like you brought up the bullies on the playground, and I actually think that's really a good way a good way of beginning in a lot of ways. Because I, I mean, when I'm in my with my classes, I normally do a similar scenario, but it's you know you're walking down the alley and you're approached by a couple guys, mm -hmm. a couple guys at night, right? Okay. And they obviously have power over you, mm. right? And they Big can guess. hurt you physically. And they, and so now the question is, well, do you have to obey them? Right? Do like, you have to? Like if they tell you to give Like you. if they tell you to give, give them your wallet. Right. It's right. Are you morally obliged to obey them simply because they have power? Well, of course not. Right? In fact, if you can run away, you're justified in doing so. If you could fight back, you're justified in doing so. If you think you can. But if you can't, or if that's a bad idea and your wallet's not worth it, you give them the wallet, right? right? Because that's the prudential thing to do. And it's like, fine, these thugs, these tyrants want my wallet. That's not worth risking my life. I'm going to give them the wallet. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. But they have. But that's not because of any sort of moral obligation I have to give them my wallet. Right. I'm totally. being robbed. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's important that we just get that out because, and, and maybe I'm, I'm I'm hitting a, a sort of particular um, hobby horse of mine because. Uh, there's very often, especially in Catholic circles, some of this stuff gets clouded with sort of claims of legitimate authority, yeah. obedience to the legitimate powers and all this high sounding mm -hmm. uh, moral obligation stuff, none of which applies to tyrants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so when you're talking about tyrants, right. th that's not what we're talking about. I mean, we can talk about some of that, some of that later. So, I mean, the, 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 the scenario of some thugs robbing you on the street is a good one because we can expand it. Sure. Do right? so. So you can say, okay, a mafia, an organized crime syndicate, a crime family that controls a, a neighborhood. And they may in fact provide – so they're criminals. They're mm -hmm. stealing. They're mm -hmm. extorting. They're – you know, but they may also provide a certain degree of stability. So you yeah. can imagine in, in like third world countries or in big cities, whatever, there are – there is – a certain degree of stability that a mob, a, a mafia can provide. And well, even you don't even have to go that far, man. When I, <laughs> working in Steubenville at all, you, you'll often run into people who are old enough to remember when the mob had more of a presence here before they moved to Vegas. And they will almost without fail say it was way better when the mob yeah. 
had some control because at least they took care of their own. Yeah. Okay. So so and they and they even control crime. Yeah. Because they want to be they want to have a monopoly on crime, right? right. You so know, like some... petty crime that's being operated, other gangs, other people, like they'll enforce yeah. it. I mean, there's a, there's some good sort of peace that the a mob a, a mafia controlled area can have under right. the mafia. Right. And so then you're saying, well, they're tyrants, yes. they're criminals, they don't have legitimacy. And they're and and just to nail in on it, the the reason they're tyrants fundamentally is that that de facto power they're wielding that that is for the sake of their private gain. And right. Not, and the only reason why the other goods they might be providing, the only reason why they're doing those things right, is because it serves their private gain. Totally. Right. So they're not it's it's yeah, it's incidental the fact that it happens to contribute to the common good in certain in Nevertheless certain it does. But nevertheless it does. So now you say, well, I, I'm justified in rebelling against this mafia. Of course mm -hmm. you are. You're justified in fighting them, but is it a good idea? Right? Is it the right thing to do, morally speaking, from a prudential point of view? And it may very well be no, it's not, because what what I'm going, you know, if I get rid of this mafia, what replaces it? Right. Just totally. the neighboring one who's worse, right. or my own mafia, or yeah, right? you saw this in <clears throat> Sicily when I mean, this is I don't I don't have boots on the ground there, but one of the uh, when there was some anti mafia, you know, movements in government, one of the things that uh, the actual mafia did there was they just stopped collecting trash because they had so thoroughly become a part of the city's functioning that yeah. like trash collection was done by them. <laughs> and awesome. so it, it was, a, I mean, granted, I, I don't mean this as at, to say anything good about them, but it simply shows like uh, the actual prudential question one might have right. if one were to take on the mafia in Sicily, one of the things would be like, well, Who's going to take out the trash? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, and, and these are these are the sorts of questions when Thomas talks about um, the, how careful you have to be about rebellion yeah. because the consequences are are unclear and they could very well be worse. The stability, you know, get rid of this, getting rid of the stability, getting rid of the goods that are provided by the structure. Yeah. These things may actually result in a worse scenario. This is especially the case with, given what we were saying earlier in the discussion, which is that most tyrannies, if they emerge from within a society, are emerging from within a society that is disordered, mm. right? That it is basically tyrannical down and through, which means that yeah. the, the rebellion that's going to be successfully mounted against the tyrant is most likely a rival tyranny. Yeah, and I think <laughs> we should slow down on this point because it's, it's very important because whenever you talk about recognizing the the tyrant it can sound like you're coming from this place of great of great purity um and great mm, righteousness but the argument of tyranny is that it probably means most likely means that the entire society is sinful is vicious and because of that uh, a tyranny is possible mm -hmm. and what that means is that any group of guys that you get together to throw out the tyrant are themselves most likely still vicious most likely yeah. right and so it, it's not that the, – the difficulty is that in the destruction of a tyrant who's providing for some good, who's providing some order, um, you can't just get the same kind of person to do it for the same kind of reasons. The only other – the only distinguishing – thing that angers your rebel being that he's not right now the tyrant He's himself. not the guy who right now happens to be the tyrant, right? And this is something that historically, okay, of course, happens just over and over again, right? What do you, what do you mean? Oh, like... In, like like the, the new, the, the revolutionaries are the worst tyrants, right? Totally. right? They overthrow one tyranny and, you, you you know, think, I mean, obviously the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, I mean, just name it, yeah, right? Where a tyranny is overthrown 
and the people who overthrew them, overthrew the tyranny, become far worse tyrants. And isn't this just a very dangerous part about uh, a dangerous part of the American psyche on this whole question? Because maybe not the American, maybe it's just a liberal problem, but we have detached ourselves from questions of the good, right? So the the ruler is not necessarily to um, orientate us all towards the good because we don't really know what the good is and we certainly don't want to say that it's salvation in Jesus Christ or something like that because that wouldn't be very liberal of us. So we leave that question nebulous. But at the same time, we're founded on the basis of uh, rebellion. Like our whole idea is that we rebelled against unjust authorities and that's who we are. So then rebellion itself becomes this kind of inculcated virtue. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure you felt this, the certain mandate to be a rebel. Like, mm-hmm. um, Everybody's a rebel. Everyone's a rebel. The, the, the Democrats are rebels in relation to the Republicans. The Republicans are, Demo- are, are uh, rebels in relation to the Democrats, and it goes all the way down. Every teenager is, is, is a rebel. Is a rebel, yeah. yeah. And it's lame. Um, <laughs> but it, it also it leads to this, the likelihood of the scenario you're describing which is that rebellion cherished for its own sake means that you feel the need to rebel, but the goods that you're pursuing are never brought into question. So what are those goods? Well, generally, they're just whatever everyone kind of values. It's just that you want them for you or for a group of people. Yeah, or or even maybe even worse is is, is the people subject to a tyranny who live in a tyranny can become, there's a particular kind of vice that happens at the bottom. So servility, servility breeds envy and bitterness, Mm -hmm. hatred, resentment, right? And that that can motivate a rebellion. Yes, totally. And it's not quite the same battery of vices as the elite, right? But it has, it's, it's just as vicious. Yeah, totally. Right. And the, and the tyranny that comes out of that, out of the hatred, envy, bitterness could be the worst. And and it seems to me like in America now, just to We'll get back to the theoretical, but it seems yeah. <laughs> it seems like that's probably the only kind of rebellion that one could hope for, practically speaking, in America. If you were going to say, "Look, this government is corrupt; the um, wealthy are are corrupt," what would you be able to stir that could mount an opposition to its armies? I mean, I don't think much, but if you could, I don't think it would be motivated by the just society or the vision of of a kingdom of peace. Uh, where Christ reigns, I think it would probably be motivated by the desire to um, hurt yeah. people seen as enemies. And yeah, I mean, this is a very pri- a very particular question about our current se- sure. situation because I think I think a rebellion it would be a confuse it's a confusing thing. I mean, because because are we just talking about about against the formal state, right, right, which is just not the actual power structure, right? It's just an aspect of the power structure. The power structure is way more complicated than that. So if you're talking about against the regime as a whole, the only way for that, something like that to occur is for the regime to split in half. Mm. I mean, I mean, what I mean is you need, you need at least half the army. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I I don't, um, I I don't think that happens through some sort of radical, uh, radical switch in mentality. I think it, I think it's sort of more likely to be a sort of, um, you know, third century Roman Empire kind of one general replacing the next general type of a situation. Right. But Every the, two but, years, they overthrow the last one. But the mentality is very common between yeah. each one. <laughs> yeah, between each one. What's not questioned is all, all of the vice. Yeah, right, right, right. Because to you, to overthrow the actual regime would be to overthrow the system 
as a whole, which means to overthrow not only the political system, but the money-making system and mm. all the all the sort of pleasures and things, you know, desires that we're all sort of desperately trying to fulfill, which is the basis of the tyrannical society to begin with. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, a, a real revolution is a pretty, pretty substantial operation here. I mean, awesome. It, Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I, but, I, but I, <laughs> I think that one must do it. One objection that probably would come up quite early is, um, and, and maybe by addressing it, then we can move forward on, on the practical um, advice for just rebellion. Um, and that's that there's, with that example you gave of the mafia, Mm-hmm. That there's a certain difference that comes with official positions of power. That if the mafia um, were, say, elected into office, that it by virtue of those offices that they fulfill, that something changes in regards to the Christian's obligation um, to rebel against tyrants. Yeah. And, and where I'm thinking of this is something we've discussed briefly before, and I think it would be worth giving a real thorough look at this, which is Romans 13. Okay. Because wherever I find myself at all tempted by certain libertarian twitches, which I think I certainly have. Yeah, me too. Um, it's okay. If you're going to have twitches, that's that's probably the direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> I get... The book laid down on me, Romans 13, which begins, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, um, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, I'll just, I'll just lay out, if I can, like maybe the extreme interpretation of this, right? Which is namely that when we have authorities over us, presidents, you know, governors, policemen, um, that by virtue of them holding that office of authority, uh, that they, that they are required, um, are, we are, are obliged, are, we are obliged to be obedient to them mm-hmm. and that where they are, um, wrong, we are obliged to still obey, uh, Unless there's some grave, extreme case, say, um, commanding us to kill someone or something that directly like violates. sometimes people will say to to commit a mortal sin, right? Yeah, directly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will say that. Yeah. And I think there's a there's a on the face of it, I think you can have that mentality, and then the passage from Romans will kind of speak that to you because yeah, it sure. says things like. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Right. So how do we go about reconciling the fact that this is our teaching on authority and rebellion and subjection from the Bible? Right. Um, but then on the other hand, we're saying that tyranny is must be rebelled against. Yeah. Um, and that the only question is one of prudence in the doing. <laughs> <laughs> So what I what I would say where I would begin yeah. is, I mean, we can do a sort of exegesis of this, which is fine to do, but yeah. I do think there's a certain common sense element to just initiate. Okay, go. Okay, which is, does that mean Hitler was instituted by God and we need to obey him? Like, let's just talk about Hitler. Mm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we need to obey him. Yes. So what what would that entail? We need to do everything 
the entire operation, the entire his entire project, his entire Nazi project, which is nothing but a series of commands, most of which are not in of themselves mortal sins. Mm. We need to obey, obey, obey. And then if he just has a little cadre of people who don't care about the mortal sins, he can pull off the Holocaust. Mm. Is that is that what we're being ordered to do? I, I mean, I mean, I, I can't I think, speak for. <laughs> I, I, we just we just need to like right from the beginning, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, right. So so like the fact that somebody obviously the, the the fact that somebody holds some sort of office. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is I think it, what someone would say is that um, you you don't obey Hitler. Or maybe they'd give a little more room to like, okay, not just mortal sins, but things that are obviously orientated towards massive mortal sins like the Holocaust. Um, but then you're opening a whole can of worms right there. Well, I but, think but, but, but I think they would say something like, but the the um, his authority, that is to say, his uh, in whatever sense he is a legitimate ruler of the people. But see, now we've now God. you just dropped the yeah, yeah the L word, the legitimate word. Because the problem is, is that if you're reading this yeah. as if all de facto authority all de facto power yeah. is the authority that he's talking about. So if you read it that way, so the guys who happen to be in power are the ones who have authority, are the ones instituted by God, are the ones I must obey. Then you get into this Hitler problem. Yeah, totally. You also get into the mafia problem. You get into the, the guy who's more powerful than you in the sidewalk problem, right? Because, well, you start talking about sort of official positions. Well, the mafia has, uh, they elect each other. They have offices within the mafia. They mm -hmm. have they have a constitution of sorts that well, runs Well, and, and maybe and, more and, to the point, if they all got elected into office because of however, you know, they convinced the people that that's, that's who to vote for. Right, who cares? Right. Or, 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 or you know, uh, the, the, the Genghis Khan or something. Was he, did he have the office of warlord mongol warlord it's like well yeah i think he was like the chief right so i mean it's just those, those are things are historically contingent sort of sure. meaningless in a sort of philosophical sense words or titles offices constitutions what I, I don't i don't know where they would come from i mean i do know where they come from but we can talk about that in a bit but those aren't the thing that's being those can't be the thing that is being talked about here Right, that can't be the thing from God. From God, God doesn't create constitutions. So, I mean, as, mu as much as a, a lot of, uh, of people on the American right might not like to hear that, God does not write constitutions. Yeah, right. There, and and He doesn't. Um, those are historically contingent, uh, human specific. I mean, it, in their best, historically contingent human specifications of the natural law. But then it seems like, in so, some ways, what you're saying is even more authoritarian than Romans gives out, because it sounds like you're saying that it's not. Let every person be subject to the official authorities, but just to any authority, de facto power. So, I mean, this is a this is a more important read. This would be the yeah. I think the better way to approach it. Okay, because then you need to now distinguish between power and authority, <laughs> right? And we need to start. And, and it, the thing about the thing about Romans thirteen is that he, he's actually describing to us mm -hmm. what authority looks like. He tells us what it does. Yeah, so he, he says. Um, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Right. That's a definition of God's authority. God's servant for your good. So, so a power that power that satisfies those that description, where that description is describing it, is what we would call a legitimate authority. Gotcha. Legitimate authority. So you invoke the word legitimate, yeah. right? This is a description of what it means to be legitimate. 
when you are legitimate, then you need to you need to obey a legitimate authority. When that is when so when this is applies. when this is the situation, he needs to be obeyed. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, because there's another way you can read. <laughs> For there is no authority except from God. That could also be read as all of those de facto relations of power that are evil and not from God. Aren't from God. And therefore they are not authorities. Therefore they're not authorities, right. And and we know this, right? Because we know we we would make a distinction between the man who stops you in the alleyway. We would say there's power there, sure, but we wouldn't say there's an authority. But there's any there. authority there because I don't I, I, I what what is the condition here? The condition here is that is that the the power is being deployed for the common good. Right. I mean, yeah, that's you have the to become God's servant for your for the good and of I, others. And I think that this is the important distinction: is that when we when we encounter power in yeah. society that is ordered to the common good, yeah. And this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter what level of scale. So right. we, we talk about society as being ordered in a hierarchy of power or in power structures, and there's people who wield power throughout it. Yeah. And those that power is legitimate, right? So legitimate is just a way of saying legal. Mm-hmm. Right, and, I, and we mean it legal in a metaphysical sense, not in a statutory sense. Just, it's just right. All these are all the same word. Um, that power is just to the extent that it is being deployed for the common good, which is the essential characteristic of authority, and which does oblige us to obey. Right, and that's what authority is. An authority is something that you obey out of out of uh, obligation so it's obedience mm-hmm. right rather than rather than just power which is which you might submit to but you're not obeying it right totally and and this seems like to go right back to that question of office because mm-hmm. you know when you interpret this as just meaning whoever holds an office that is associated with rule or that is for the sake of rule is therefore to be obeyed by virtue of holding that office this seems to blow that out of the water because it's saying wherever there is rule that is for the sake of the common good, then insofar as that's true, you're obliged to obey it. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the point is that the call to... Office ob- or no office. The call to obedience yeah. in, in our read in my, here is far more extensive yeah. than the sort of um, divine right absolutist don't, 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 Catholics would want it to be. Don't you, <laughs> don't you think we... So, like, I am I am raising my family for the common good. Okay. Okay. I rule um, my children for their sake as mm-hmm. members, but also for the sake of the community, which is right. for the sake of the city, blah, blah, blah. Right. You are obligated to obey me within that sphere. Now, what I mean is simple. I mean, you can see this. Like, everyone knows this, right? If if you, you know, you're in my house and maybe you've been drinking too much and you're there too late and it's bedtime, I, th- this would never happen. This wouldn't happen. Probably not. It actually, it wouldn't happen. There's no way. I'm not joking. <laughs> That's not sarcasm. Like, you would never do this. Um... Right, and if I tell you to get out, yeah, right, you would obey me. That's right, and you ought to obey me. You're obliged. Right. Yeah, to obey if me. I didn't, everyone would know I was wrong. Right. Yeah, and it's not because you are have a respect for the office, right? Now, of course, you could describe that in official terms, right? You mm-hmm. can you can sort of step back and say, well, the father is this, and he has these sort of constitutional sure. duties for yeah. his children, and that. Uh, means that there's these yep. rights and responsibilities from people relating to him, blah blah blah. And that's actually not wrong. No, it's not. But it's... what it is is a is a sort of um, customary description of de facto realities. Exactly. And this is what I want to get at: that the reason there are offices is because there is customary expectation of justice mm-hmm. from people in power. So what I mean is that yes, the, what makes an office worthy of respect? Well, ultimately, if you just say, okay, we got an office here and it's going it's to be called El Presidento, right? And it's an office of power by which I rule this particular table here. 
And whenever someone does something that offends my weird idiosyncratic aesthetic abilities, I, I hit them as hard as I can. Mm-hmm. There's an office. Right. All right. It's official, you know. And, and you know, maybe we even all voted and you guys agreed that there should be El Presidento. So it's, yeah. you know, it's ratified. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, the, the point is the reason that a president or anyone um, within an official capacity enjoys authority is because there's a customary expectation of that authority working for the common That's good. That's right. Yeah, there's trust. It's, it's a, a trust, which is which should be understood in its sort of sense of spanning generations mm-hmm. because um, you can trust there's a certain treasure treasure chest of trust built up over the years that the reason you expect the office is because um, it is utilized to do good. It is utilized for the common good. And it even concretizes into this expectation, a social expectation that, well, the police officer will do good. That's what he does. Yeah, that's right. And we even we even cut in a, in a customary mode, give power to the offices, right? So we can say, we have a way we, we the way that we order ourselves the way we try to order de facto power yeah right is by is by having uh, offices that um that wield that power de facto as an aspect of the customary sort of inheritance yeah but it's important to see that that itself is 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 a form of obedience mm-hmm. i mean what i mean is the reason that the the president has the de facto power that he does or doesn't have is because the way in which the society as a whole is customarily um customarily obeys him yeah totally. right so there's a certain you know we we have you know uh, there's many different ways this could be ordered obviously there's sort of tribal systems there's systems that have elders there's democratic systems there's monarchical systems and the church has just repeatedly uh, repeatedly say there's no particular form and this is exactly why is because these are historically contingent human specifications right. of justice and there's any number of ways that that human beings can specify justice but those specifications are always based upon um sort of averages i mean what i mean is it's like we 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 devise a structure a power structure that works most of the time mm-hmm. and because of that we develop um, a tolerance for those every once in a while when it fails. Sure. We'll forgive it, sure. right? We'll be tolerant of it. We're slow to react because yeah. we trust it overall. Yeah, right. Right? And in that sense, these offices do get a certain legitimacy because if they are, in fact, a part of a just society and they are ordered towards the common good, it's right for people to be patient with it, mm-hmm. right? And not to be rash in overthrowing even an office. No, this, but this is true, again, with any um, relationship of power in which the one with power is seen to be um, serving the common good, mm-hmm. right? That if there is – and it goes back to Aquinas' point that you, you – I mean, well, I don't know if you mentioned this directly, but that you don't rebel where there's the chance of the disturbance of the peace, mm-hmm. um, or where that chances or, exceeds or, whatever gain, right. whatever possible improvement you might get. Right, because yeah, you yeah. can see how in, um, yeah, in any relationship, like with a, a father and their son, you might not uh, a father might screw up, the fathers do screw up, but the reason that you continue to obey your father is not because he fulfills an office that must be respected regardless of the justice of the father. 
right. because it's precisely the expectation of justice that means the office is powerful exactly. in the first place. That's exactly right. Rather, because the expectation is for justice, there's patience, there's tolerance of a particular act of injustice as being um, not, I mean, it's just not the order of the day. It's not a deal breaker. It, but, <laughs> but if you read Romans 13 in this sort of, I, I just think kind of naive way or, or whatever you want to insult it with, um, you end up in this idea that like the father, even in as he becomes completely a tyrant in his sin, should be obeyed that's because right. he's your father. Right. But that's not true. That's No, of course it's not. Like, There's a time, a time comes when, when your father must be fought. Right? There's like your dad goes after your mom and it's okay for you to defend her. Mm-hmm. Right? And not like that, that this is <laughs> like when that happens. Right. Right when that line is crossed, it's not just it's not just okay. It's you're you're obliged to rebel. And we could even uh, we could even express that obligation in terms of that customary expectation of justice from the office. Like when if the teenager whoever says something like you're not being a father, right? He would be absolutely right because it's not father is not this like ideal category. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the just act. It is the act of um, gift. And where it's gone in a habitual way like this man is disposed to not give to yeah. those below him and that's the destruction of trust it's and the that's the destruction of anything like authority. what we mean by the office yeah so authority is gone right now you're just a thug mm-hmm. right and that and the thug doesn't have any claim to my obedience that's right <laughs> and that and that is i mean so we we need not i think that all of these prudential discussions aside all of this everything that we're talking about here is important, but we need to understand that, that we need to keep circling back to the obligation to rebellion, right? Because, and, and, and the, the obligation. So when we talk about, as soon as you realize you're living in a tyranny and you're living under a tyrant, you have the obligation to rebel, but you also have the obligation to rebel prudentially. Mm -hmm. Okay. So which, which may very well mean not raising a militia and trying to overthrow them. It may be, trying to undermine the basis of its power it may mean it may mean trying to you know subtly in the places where you have power attempt to structure the beginnings of some society that will be able to stand up to the tyrant in time mm-hmm. and maybe trying to rewire that customary uh, order that you're in all of which are acts of rebellion yes. against the tyrant right. they're just strategic right, right. <laughs> and, and, and they're not just strategic like i'm gonna wait for the moment in which it's moral they're strategic in the sense of I'm going to make, wait for the moment in which it works. And part of it working is that you cannot have a tyranny replaced by a rebellion that's motivated by the same goals as the tyrant. This is what we've discussed. Things will be worse, yeah. Things will be much worse. And so it means that for the Christian who's obliged to rebel against tyranny, there's it, it kind of happens in slow motion in a way, or, or it seems like slow motion compared to something like the French Revolution or something. When we think of revolution and rebellion, we have this right. kind of fiery instant you know happening but it's almost always tends to mean that something bad is happening because it means that well the culture didn't have to change in order to get its rebellion right (laughs) Uh, so you have as history plays out you have tyrants replacing tyrants right um but what we need is to develop a society of people who are capable of resisting tyranny but not on the tyrant's terms so the reason why ultimately after generations gain enough power to do so an army could be raised against a particular american tyranny tyranny um is because there's enough people finally that want 
justice mm-hmm. and want to serve the common good and for the common good to be served. Um, and that, to my mind, while not a despairing, um, it's not despairingly far in the future, it certainly is not a um, thing you can whip up overnight. No, and I, and I think that we have historical example um, in, in the conversion of the Roman Empire and the overthrow of the Roman Empire that's maybe worth bringing up. Because what you see is that at the very bottom, like at the very beginning of rebellion, the very first move is to refuse to be afraid of the punishments and to refuse to be allured, be drawn in by the, the rewards that the tyrant offers, right? So you, you don't want his promises. You're not afraid of his punishments. Okay. And at that point, you've already committed the decisive act of rebellion. Right. right, like the decisive act has has been occur has occurred. You are in rebellion, and because that's the, his mechanism of control is, is is punishment and reward. Right, right. and so you've ext- unilaterally extracted yourself out. He just has no power over you at that point. Right. So at that point, th- we're, what we're talking about here is martyrdom, obviously, because because if you're not afraid to go all the way, right, to go all the way to the tyrant killing you, then his power over you vanishes right so at that point you are deciding on your own volition what you are going to do or not going to do um prudentially within his regime Mm -hmm. right because you've already you've already decided that you'd be willing to go all the way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a certain and even though you have no de facto power very very small de facto power wherever you have that power you're in open rebellion right this is the reason this is the reason why they, the pe- tyrants like the like in Rome martyred the martyrs, <laughs> like went after them and killed them because they knew they were in open rebellion. It was obvious that they were. I mean, they they even they even say things like this, like like, well, I don't know what these people believe. It's weird, but we're really executing them because they don't obey us. Yeah, right. Their obstinance is is reason enough to execute them. Right, like they, <laughs> you know. And so I think, I think that their that decisive act, it, it can occur from the very beginning. But what happens, I think, is that the the move, and I think we talked about this maybe in an earlier podcast I did, that that, that is also the, the foundational act of the establishment of an alternative society that's not just a rival tyranny because yeah. what it is is, this, is the establishment of a grouping of people who are not ordered by fear, right? And so you, you've overcome fear and now you're going to be ordered based on peace or based on love of some sort. And so the society that is willing to suffer, right? Like the, the, the society that is willing to suffer is precisely the society that offers an alternative basis of order, right? right? Because those are the same thing. Those are two ways of talking about the same phenomenon. Um, and so that's the kernel. That's the beginning, right? And that's, and that's the beginning that then draws society, the people who are observing that, who are observing both the society of peace and then the martyrdom that flows out of it. I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily be spectacular martyrdom being thrown to the lions. It may just be the willingness to lose your job, the willingness for your kids not to get into a nice school, whatever. I mean, just any sort of punishments, the right. willingness to suffer those punishments right. and the lack of interest in the rewards that the tyrant offers attracts the anxious and fearful and, and you know um, upset populations. Mm-hmm. And that society grows. Mm-hmm. As that society grows, that's a society, like I've already said, that the tyrant has no power of, over. Mm-hmm. He can't – none of his mechanisms work. Right. right? So, so all he can do 
is is try to st- stamp it out and try to kill as many of them as he can. But it w- but that normally seems to be the case is that just spins it up, right? right because every martyr is evidence of the, the reality rebellion. of love well, that right. it's real, but also evidence that there are people that don't fear the punishments and don't desire the rewards, rewards. and um, are willing to die for it. So they prove it. <laughs> they prove it, right? You never quite know until someone you dies. You prove for it. it. Yeah. You prove it. Right. That's right. And 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 that and that's very attractive to people. But I think that that builds then the basis for uh, a resistance. Well, like right? de facto power. I mean, you're getting it builds bigger. de facto power. You're getting bigger. You're yeah. becoming more powerful. You start capturing offices. Mm-hmm. You start right these. And this is what happens in the Roman Empire. Well, and it's uh, again, I. It's frustrating because there's like a, a narrative that would argue that this just didn't happen, which is I find it very frustrating. It's like Constantine sort of comes in and converts the Roman Empire as if it was as if as if there was nothing being built, right? As if there's no de facto power being built. Um, and, and the problem with this argument is actually because it makes Christianity this kind of weird thing that's only really ratified when it's taken up into the tyrannical form. It's like, uh, and this is why I think a lot of Protestants have this argument against Catholicism as a sort of Constantian, how would you say that? Yeah. Religion. Right. What I mean to say is like, while obviously that has its effect, it's not the case that it, that Christian civilization was not being built from the very beginning. That in every, I mean, where, where two or more are gathered in Christ's name, you actually have increasing amounts of material power. Like you can call on more friends. It grows, right? You're taking new, you know, new commands from bishops and priests as opposed to, um, as opposed to the pagan structures. Mm-hmm. Um, you have land that is beginning to be owned in common or is just accessible to uh, the community. So, and you have different structures that just don't even map on to the pagan structures of power and command. So you think about like godparents, that there's something new um, in Christianity. The as whole it thing, the world. The whole imperial, I mean, there, there's a. The whole imperial order yeah. is different. <laughs> <laughs> so when it is Christianized, so I, I, it it the emperor is no longer the emperor. Right, I mean, totally. we still call him an emperor, but he's not the emperor. He's not like Constantine is not Diocletian, and he he, he is not like Diocletian, right? And and he, I mean, he's maybe more like Diocletian than Theodosius will be, you know, uh, uh, eighty years later or something, sure. because there's a sort of transition point. Right. But by the time you get there, he can be rebuked publicly by Ambrose, Saint Ambrose. Uh, for behaving like an emperor, for, right, for right. militarily slaughtering people and and excommunicated, and he he comes and does public penance to the church. Amazing. Right? This is not Diocletian. Seems so like what, so you, what you're arguing though, what, is... what we're seeing there are real structures of power, social structures of power, de facto power. Yeah. Ambrose has real power. Right. And those are those are Christian forms, not tyrannical forms. Yeah, and and it's not discontinuous from the state of martyrdom. So it's not like Okay, we're being killed. We're being killed. No, it's it's the same awful. Thing. And yeah. then um, we somehow gain enough power, and now we're doing some new thing, right? Which is, I think, how it tends to be described. 
No, that's right. And that's definitely the way a lot of Protestant scholars will, 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 will articulate the story because they'll want to say that when Constantine converted, we went from the pure church, the sort of suffering mm. church, mm -hmm. pure to the powerful church, mm -hmm. and that that was the corruption, right? But, but they don't see martyrdom as being powerful from the beginning. They don't, right. They see it as an entirely passive thing, and they don't see it as an act of rebellion from the very beginning. Right. And, that in, and it's an act of rebellion against crime against illegitimacy, which means illegal power, unjust right. power. And that what happens as that rebellion gains steam and it becomes powerful enough and it eventually builds the structures of power to be the most powerful thing, like the, the, the tables are turned. Yes. Right? Now it's the big the, the the big brother on the playground defending his little brother from the bully. Right. Right? So now you 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 are always called to martyrdom, but you're not called to, you're also called to defend the weak against the against the vicious. Yeah. Right. And so the idea that there's some um, and, and to sacrifice yourself in doing so, like to be willing to die fighting the bully. Right. Right. To defend the little kid. Right. And that is now a way. It's an ex, it's a it's an extension of the same act of rebellion that is present in martyrdom. Now shifting to where you have more power. Right. So your strategic calculus is shifted. Right. To now I must fight. Totally. Right, but it's not. But it's not a different mentality. But I must fight not for private gain. I must fight for the common good. Rebellion is, begins with martyrdom, and then when you have enough de facto power, it must become fighting. That's right. It must become war. Yeah, war against. And evil. this troubles people because they have a kind of I don't know if it's pacifist or whatever. It doesn't. I don't really care what it is. It's just wrong <laughs> because because they want to say that the martyrdom is this pass, passive activity. Right. Right. And then somehow rule is this active activity. Um, as if the one who suffers because he can't uh, save the weak from being hurt by bullies is somehow different than the one who destroys the bullies now that he is now that he does have the de facto power. Right. It's like that's one person. That's, that's the one same movement. person. Exactly. And we right. know that. Well, and they and the tradition does this in a very, very cool kind of way, right? Where you have the martyrs. The early martyrs described as soldiers. Oh, totally. They just snatched that whole metaphor. Yeah, right. And then you have themselves. the crusaders described as martyrs. Mm. So there's a sort of a sort of continuity to the whole thing, right? That like the and the and the understanding, you know, the understanding of say the crusaders is that they must be fighting for justice. Otherwise, and if they are, and if they are laying down their life for the common good, they that is an act of martyrdom. Right. And and even though it is also an act of warfare. Yeah. You know, and so it's a the spiritual warfare and the literal warfare converge is the point on the in, in this way of of understanding. So so what I, what we're getting at here is that is that resistance to the, the tyranny that will that will the rebellion against the tyranny that will result not in just another tyranny, but in a just society is is a pro is a process that begins with the willingness to suffer and then proceeds to the point at which armed an armed action does in fact occur so yeah. this is like that is a totally um necessary uh, component and and will become obligatory like yeah fighting totally. against the tyrant yeah um and risking your life to defend the weak against the tyrannical powerful is uh something that we're called to do in justice Totally. I mean, can you imagine how how frustrating it would be for someone to hold a pacifist position when they wielded the power necessary to put an end to some kind of criminal violence? Like to say, oh, um, I'm not going to stop that guy abusing those children right in front of me because I'm a pacifist. Right. Totally. 
and I, th I think also in some ways, because sometimes we think it purely as an individual thing and not as a social reality, which is foolish to begin with, but we think that somehow passivity for oneself is laudable as if, as if <laughs> we're rewarded merely for suffering. I mean, this is very good. You don't yeah. find a lot of people that believe this, but it's like, no, no, no. What is laudable is that you're suffering for the sake of the common good. Right. What's laudable is that you're dying for Christ in That's this right. church. Right. What's, what's not laudable is just that you are adhering to a law of non-resistance. Like there's something impressive about sure. it, right? It yeah. takes, yeah. takes guts, yeah. it takes stoicism, it takes a lot. Mm -hmm. But it's not, like you don't merit. It could actually be an act of injustice. It could. Yeah, like yeah. if you have power and you do not deploy it for the weak, you know, it becomes an act of self-indulgence. I know I hesitate to say that, but no, no, I think that's I think that's quite correct. <laughs> one one thing that I that I I think is apparent is that there's a kind of um, the willingness to die locks the tyrant who opposes the people who are willing to die into a escalation towards an extreme revelation of his tyranny. That's right. Yeah, what I yeah, mean yeah. is it's very simple. It's like the whole, everything we've been saying has been that the tyrant has to hide that he's a tyrant in order for his law to be effective because we don't like when we recognize that people are just ruling for private gain, right? Mm -hmm. Even in our cynicism, we don't want it. Um, but what <laughs> what happens when, when a martyr goes all the way to the end and forces the hand of the tyrant to kill him because he has no de facto power is that the tyrant is revealed as a thug that's right right there's no like um there's no mistaking uh and, and it's important to point out like these people are not dying for crimes they're not mm -hmm. dying for for you know some and this is where I mean Paul says this sometimes like be holy so that you'll have no that will be that you'll be beyond reproach. Mm -hmm. and it's actually very important, right? Because if we are um, not holy and we're also being killed, then we can always be arguably not really martyrs. Arguably, right. we're on the hand of some uh, of a just maybe an maybe an overbearing but still a just kind of punishment. Um, but when we're beyond reproach and we're killed, then. Precisely to the extent that that happens, the so-called official authority is revealed as a lawless criminal. Right. And that escalates because now more people see him as a lawless criminal, so more people don't want to follow him. Well, if there's more people that don't want to follow him, then he has to kill more people. And then you can see how it escalates to, to it. It also extreme. reveals his weakness, yeah. uh, which I guess is an aspect of the same thing. Because what it reveals is that is that the false world, the fictitious world that he's built in which he's the god, <laughs> is actually has holes in it. Mm. Right, like where there is where there is where it's necessary for him to inflict yeah. direct violence. What's if being, you're God, why can't you just get the Christians? Yeah, to what's being burn revealed the is that oh, there's like the substrate world. Yeah, there's a world in which the tyrant encounters something that pushes up against him. Yeah, right, and that he doesn't control. And and so I think I think you know this is something to just remember is that where where a tyrant has to use actual violence is is revealing where he has no power. Totally. Right, so, his power is rooted in the lie, not yeah. in the sword. Right? Yeah, which is like this. So there's a twofold revelation in every martyrdom that the tyrant that kills you is both weak and criminal. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> at, at some point, if it looks really weak and really, really criminal, criminal, then you take it. Yeah, that's you right. Destroy it. And you destroy right? it. Yeah, and overturn it. And and this is why that that shift. I mean, that shift that you see again, like say in the Roman Empire, where they're refusing to burn. To, to, to sacrifice to the demons 
and then they get to the position of power where they then destroy sacrifices to the demons and and, and destroy temples, the temples and yeah. destroy that this is this is not a shift in their mentality this is yeah. one act of rebellion against the idols totally. right i mean obviously um and so what what we well, I, I, and I don't even know why that's controversial. <laughs> I don't either. It, it's like <laughs> I know we're not like naming names here. I don't want to, but 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 if you're suffering something, and it's as suffering, like your whole your whole reason for your glory is that it's suffering and evil. Then then when you destroy the evil later, it's not because because you, now you have power to do it. It's not like discontinuous like oh now, now they're like, taking material power intolerant it's like <laughs> intolerant <laughs> I mean, do you remember what was happening a generation earlier you know exactly through they these would idols? not tolerate the worship of idols idols they died rather than do it yeah so of course <laughs> when you have power you are not then going to tolerate the worship of idols. no of course not right um, that's insane to believe otherwise i i think so too and i i think that there's a strange i mean we've mentioned this before but there's a strange idea sometimes among christians i think that that it's like it's like the world, like we get to be Christians in this little like protected pocket, and then there's like the world that has policemen and armies and stuff like that. But that's not you know we don't we don't do those things for Christianity or for God, right? Those are things yeah. that are running, of course, according to some other sort of principles. And we get to be sort of pure in our in our you know pacifist kind of purity in our private life, right? And it's like I really think that's an incoherent position. So I really think that what you, you have basically two positions. In, in front of us. One of them is that there ought not to be armies and and that there ought, there's no justification for armies, there's no justification for police forces, and that is a pure pacifist position at that point and that you need to just um, suffer the, the de facto power of those who will build armies and build police forces against you. Okay. I, I think that is coherent, though misguided. Or the other one is to say, the armies would be better if they were fighting for Christ. The, the police would be the perfect police force if they were ordered towards justice, which means to the final end of God, to mm -hmm. God, right? So like this weird idea that you would not want the, the coercive structures of society to be ordered to the ultimate end or towards truth is, I, I, I think, um, a lack of nerve on Christians maybe? Yeah, I think that's right. Right, it's like it's like they won't quite square up to the implications of what they believe to be true. Yeah, something like that. But I don't think we should do that. I think we should square up to it. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it seems like you either abolish the police, or, or you sanctify it. You sanctify them entirely. Yeah, but you don't. If anything in between is is hypocrisy. Totally, I think that's totally right. I think that's totally. We'll, we'll right. let these guys muddy their hands with, but coercion. not us, because we're the Christians not and we don't do that, right? And I and I think. Oh, but now I'm out of my neighbor. I'm calling the cops. But as soon as you do that, you can see how the entire burden of rule now yeah. shifts to how do you deal with the criminal? How do you deal with the bully? How do you? How do I use power? How do I use violence mm -hmm. for the common good instead of against it? How do I protect it from being used to being, you know, sliding into tyranny? Right, these things become very complicated and very difficult right, but, but, social problems. But that has been from the beginning what at least Aquinas has been encouraging us to realize that the tyranny always must be rebelled against. The question is one of prudence. And as you have more and more power, you have more and more questions that prudence needs to come to bear. Right. It's right. pretty easy when you have no power. It's like, well, should I do anything? Can't. <laughs> uh, the one thing I know I won't do is burn incense to the god. Yeah, boom.
That's all. I, that's the only power I have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But now, now let's say, okay, you've got a, a network of families that are all working together and they have some of their goods taken care of, like they are farming and they're sharing food and they have the ability to sustain this community um, mm -hmm. with their mutual work. Now you have a lot more questions. Right. Now, now the power has to be deployed yeah, in more complicated ways. Mm -hmm. and, then, and as that order gets bigger and gets more powerful, it becomes more complicated, more difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. But the principle stays the same. Now, one thing that I want to bring up that I think we can't not sort of do um, is that we've been speaking in, in, in addressing the Romans question, we've been speaking as if the uh, argument was at least sensible in that there's a lot of um, officials out there. There's presidents and there's vice presidents and there's, uh, sorry, I can't think of any officials, police officers and firemen. And judges. Judges, yeah. And, and they do have this. <laughs> and so there's a certain reasonableness that says, look, these are the authorities. Mm -hmm. That's what's given by God is the offices themselves. Uh, you, you owe them all obedience. Okay. I, I think we've demolished that on its on its own terms, like that kind of naive question that just hops over the question of justice right. and simply just goes to like servility towards and And really itself. has a very superficial understanding of like historical anthropology. Like doesn't understand where those offices come yeah, from, like, how they develop Why are they powerful? Why, why, why can't I just make an office well, right now? I'll, 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 I'll name you president. You <laughs> Thanks, name man. me pres vice president. Yeah. <laughs> then we'll be in charge. So we, so, <laughs> but I think what's even more, if you wanted to just jump the question entirely, say, okay, sure. But most power in our society has no office associated with That's it. That's right. And most offices, at least to my mind, is very dubious whether they have a lot of power. Or if they do have power, it's as players within a kind of larger larger web. I mean, exactly I, I was right. thinking about this book. Um, I forget the title exactly. It was The Rise of Surveillance Capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, great book. And one of, the, one of the kind of things I don't think the author particularly meant was how, how little the state had anything to do with like how, what, what a minor player the state was. Yeah. Like you have like, okay, you have the tech companies, you have the data miners, you've got, um, you have uh, terrorists, you have the trade of information happening here. And then, oh yeah, you have the FBI that's like, please Apple, can we look into this device because they're going to blow up a building. And, and it's not, I'm not like, I, I just think that's actually realistic. Like that's a realistic take is that these are players and most of them don't have any office. Right. And even... I think that's that's totally right. That the most powerful, the the largest structures of power in our society right now are non-governmental, non-state like official. Now the reason why that people might challenge that is because they'd go, well, the state is does this immense amount of stuff. I mean, look at it: the size of the military, the size sure. of the budgets, all of that. But the way I would argue, push back on that is that that is an apparatus that's being controlled by non-state actors. Sure. Okay. So like. That it's like, yeah, the state is doing all that, but the money behind the politicians, the cultural power behind the campaigns, the money, like that's the power. That's that's at least at least a significant amount of the power, if not simply the real power. Sure. Right. So, you know, those those so they're controlling the government, is I guess what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a useful tool. Yeah, it's one of the things they use amongst amongst many other things. And again, this should be absolutely no surprise to a Catholic because what the popes have been saying again and again, I mean, and the way they've said it is just that civil authorities will be taken over by um, – well, they were talking about capitalism. So they're yeah. talking about the wealthy or, right, right. or, or, or this sort of business elite class. 
And it's just, they just have an honest recognition of power. It's like, well, it's not a question of like, uh, which offices do you hold as if those are static and just there as if they, as if they have the power somehow invested in them. I mean, it's such a weird idea that like, oh, well, we elect the president and here's a list of all the powers of the president. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you elect a president who just does whatever this other guy says, it's like that other guy's the one who has all those powers, right, not right. him. <laughs> right? Totally. And, and so let's, I want to talk about that guy. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in the president anymore. Yeah. I want to talk and, about that. And to that. be clear, this is, <laughs> and I think people can hear this and be like, oh, so what you want is like everyone to be very obedient to the Constitution. But I think what we're, we're just recognizing the fact, good president or bad president, who you're really electing is a whole network of people that are like no one is an individual like that no one can individually hold an office right like it's always going to be a network it's always going to be a network of friends that you're electing that's why you know even within official capacities you empty everyone out and you bring your friends in to be the government and it's like um but but it's not but de facto power needs to be recognized yeah um because that's where tyranny in fact if tyranny is anywhere that's the only place it can be right is is in the de facto power and and i think that the sort of wisdom of the church historically would be that the reason why it, it hesitates, it's hesitated over sort of liberal constitutional rule is because it thinks de facto power is then obscured, where we've talked about this in a previous podcast, is then is obscured behind formal structures. Mm-hmm. And you can't see who those people are, what interests or what networks in fact have the real yes. power. And and that that's bad. And that what should actually happen is that the is that the sort of offices that grow out uh, that grow within a society should reflect the actual power arrangements. Right, totally. So what I mean is, if we say someone like Jeff Bezos and whatever the Twitter guys or whomever, <laughs> we start thinking that they're the most powerful people around. The 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 way a just society would be ordered would be to start in start giving them offices. <laughs> it's like great, you're the most powerful person around. Now you're king. Yeah. You know, like, like, <laughs> here's a crown. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is the kind of thing the popes have done historically. Right? Really? Yeah, yeah. Like to transfer the crown to the most powerful families and things like that. I mean, the point. The so, point... so, okay. I mean, it's just really fascinating, right? Because I think we would see that as like uh, the papacy sort of being power hungry and making decisions to their interest. But what, what you're saying, I mean, and obviously that could happen, but what you're saying is that the injustice is that there is unrecognized power like this family actually exerts power over over those below them not this one therefore right they crown them so that they're yeah this is like the transfer from the merovingians to the carolingians oh, right yeah. so where you have a uh you have the de facto power and the de jure power and the de facto power is not the royal family gotcha. and then the papacy switches it and, and this is the exact justification they give, is that it's not right. It's not just that the, the people who are actually in power don't have the, uh, the crown. Mm-hmm. But see, this cuts both ways, right? Because you think, oh, they have so much more power. It's like, no, they don't have more power once they have the crown. They have more responsibility. Right. They have more visibility. They have more burden. Right. Right. The power, the reason why they have the crown is because they have the power. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's... So, it... I mean, to, to recognize the power and so the... And, and to demand that the people who have it become authorities, like yes. like St. Paul is talking about. Yes, exactly. Right? And say, you don't just get to have power, you must be an authority. Well, and I, I think this is what, if we can, if we can take that point as simply as we can, that we all know that the de facto power is what is, is being 
regulated so that it is oriented towards the common good. And then you read Paul again and then try to just insert not – I think we get confused by our offices because we forget that they're constituted by our trust and their continued mm-hmm. justice. Um, but if you just take that out and bring in like Jeff – you know, Bezos instead of instead of like the president or the emperor or you right, know in whatever right. official context in which you already customarily recognize um, justice flowing from that that office and the people that fill it, then it becomes obvious that that reading is impossible. If we say let every person be subject to Jeff Bezos, for there is no uh, power except from God, and those that exist like Jeff Bezos have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists Jeff Bezos resists what God has appointed, and those who resist Jeff Bezos will incur judgment. (laughs) It's not that Jeff couldn't enter into that position, right? But then he would have to become what Paul talks about, God's servant for your good. Right. And so far as we all recognize that he's not God's servant for our good, well, most people I think recognize that. We can see why this... this, uh, why there's just not a, a, a there's not a really a place within the Christian tradition for this sort of interpretation. Yeah, I just don't think in the in the. Do you think that most people know that and we're and we're just like there's no. just like no, this isn't actually a big deal. No, I don't, and I think I think it's really I think it's really in the United States it's clouded by many many decades about oh well actually probably more like a hundred and some years of us as Im- Catholics, as immigrants trying to prove our loyalty and uh, mm. like that we're good citizens. And so you get a lot of this kind of like, um, you know, loyal to the government and pay your taxes and obey them, obey the state. And, mm. and it's sort of this overcorrection, mm, you know, because we were, we were always suspicious, not suspicious. It was always dubious whether or not we were good Americans, good right. loyal Americans. Right. And I think that has kind of a long tail on it. Gotcha. I think, and, and that and that in the United States, but even that flows out of the 19th century. In the 19th century, you know, the, the, you read the papal encyclical tradition from the 19th century, and it can be it can be confusing, right? Because there, the offices tended to be monarchies, and so you you got this sort of legitimate a conflation of legitimate authority with who ought to be in power with who the sort of long-standing traditional authorities were who are mm-hmm. these monarchs mm-hmm. and sometimes the language can come out and come across as if what's being said is everyone should just obedient be obedient to whoever happens to be the king right and that's some that's sometimes the way it's read yeah you know i think understandably i think there's some confusion there yeah well, I think we've got to wrap it up one way or the other. Yeah. But it, it does seem that we can maybe end on a practical note. Um, people seem to enjoy us ending on practical notes as opposed to other abstractions. It seems like the argument here, just to recap, is that rule for private gain is abhorrent and, and we have a duty to resist um, it, tyranny, wherever it rears its head. And the question is one of prudence. Um, mm-hmm. How will we resist? And in our resistance, um, will we be successful or will we be motivated more by our own vanity trying to be righteous and then ending up creating, destroying the various goods that a tyranny does, in fact, give? Um, because that's the only way tyranny works is by establishing some kind of peace, some kind of order. Um would we destroy that for the sake of our vanity? Yeah, and 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 the, and the other side that's also worth emphasizing is it's not only that we're obliged to resist tyranny, but we're also obliged to obey authority. Right. Yeah. 
right? And that's and that's the flip side. So this isn't just sort of like a call to arms revolution because part of that, part of what the the the, the society, part of what makes us capable of replacing the tyrannical society with an, another one that's not tyrannical is our obedience to authority. Right. Power structures are real. Yep. There's real hierarchies. That's not bad. That's not wrong. Yep. And if they're ordered to the common good, we we must obey we must those obey. people above us. In, in, and that is, that's the just order. Mm -hmm. So it's that, that it's like, those are two sides of the same initiative. Yeah. And, and, it, and to say that we're prudentially deciding this in some ways is just to say that we are always capable of judging whether in fact, those above, above us are still above us by virtue of being just or whether they have in fact be corrupted themselves. Yeah. I think we are, I think we're ultimately capable because we're human beings and we have a participation in, in the rationality of right. God and of the cosmos. But but we are humble and careful because we recognize our inferior position. And so you, you're slow to judge your father. You're slow to judge these, these people who, mm -hmm. who you, you, you are obedient to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think the, the practical point then is if we do in fact live in a tyranny, as I think we've shown by showing how all the mechanisms of tyranny are essentially present here in our society, though in a, a diverse way, um, that we are then obligated to become martyrs, um, mm -hmm. because the, that is the kind of through line for all rebellion that you are not participating in that rule for private gain, uh, anymore. Um, it's a unilateral destruction of their whole structure. Like when John Paul yeah. II talks about destroying structures of domination, mm -hmm. it's like that, like you can unilaterally remove one component of that by just saying not me yeah <laughs> and that and that willingness to die of course you know in like in all likeliness won't be tested um only the people on the edges get actually tested right but it's people on the edges that prove that the whole the whole society of christians is oriented that way yeah right exactly right Yep. And then be real about what you're doing, because what you're not doing is a sort of individual passive resistance or, or, or rather just passivity towards this evil power. You are sowing the seeds of rebellion um, with the hope of their increase. Right. I mean, more people are going to be attracted to the degree that more people are motivated towards the common good and not towards the ends of the tyranny. And as they're attracted, you yourself or your children or your children's children will come at the point where you now have the obligation to fight right? where before you had the obligation to die. Yeah. This is a continuous mo movement and anyone who's willing to die but not fight is missing the point. I think so. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's it. That makes good sense to me. All right, thank you very much. <laughs> Tell you more about tyranny next time.